Isn't it interesting we pile more on our to-do list but fail to consider things we should stop doing? We create incentives for good behavior, but we don't get rid of the obstacles to achieve that behavior. We collect all sorts of new and improved ideas, but we don't prune the outdated ones. Every day, across challenges big and small, we neglect a basic way to make things better. We neglect to subtract. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Lighty Klotz about his book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. Many of my most successful clients find themselves looking for a way to preserve and grow their wealth without the uncertainty and volatility of Wall Street. There is another way. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, helps practice professionals translate their high income into a high net worth. He does this by connecting members with highly curated, passive real estate deals through his Freedom Founders community. Real estate can hedge your portfolio against inflation, all while providing passive monthly income. This secures your wealth and creates meaningful freedom in your life today, not some vague retirement date in the distant future. Some of my top clients have benefited from David's support and the Freedom Founders community. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. Lighty Klotz is the Copenhaver Associate Professor at the University of Virginia. He's appointed in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. He founded and directs the university's Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative. Klotz has earned a highly selective career award from the National Science Foundation and more than $10 million in competitive research funding. He advises influential decision makers who straddle academia and practice, working with the World Bank, the World Design Organization, and Ideas 42, among others. A columnist for The Behavioral Scientist, Klotz has written for venues including Science, Nature, Fast Company, and DailyClimate.org. On today's episode, Lydie and I discuss why it's easy to mistake less for loss, why our first instinct is to add instead of subtract, and how to make the space to go from information overload to wisdom. I'm excited to share these lessons and more from Lydie's new book on another episode of The Burleson Box. Lighty, thank you so much for joining me today. Your new book is fantastic. I'm curious, what motivated you to write about this topic? Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd always been interested in in less. Um, and I think, you know, the the ideal answer to, to what motivated really is that, you know, this was just the the find what we had what we had found out through the research and what I had found out through my own kind of exploration was you know oh my goodness this is like the most interesting thing I've ever found and I need to I need to share it it would be selfish to to keep it to myself um so that's the the theoretical answer I mean the um yeah I'll I'll leave it at that sorry <laughs> no, that's good I I love the uh, the story of you and your son playing with Legos and I was yeah. curious if that uh, you know, might have come before or after the initial uh, idea and um, kind of walk us through that exploration. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and my son is getting famous all over the world and he's it's, he's six now. And so it's kind of going to his head, which is like really cute to see. Like I'll say, Hey, as uh, you're, you're showing people how to, how to subtract and he'll put his head in his hands. Like he can't believe it. And then he'll, <laughs> and then he'll talk to his friends at school. But yeah, the reason he's getting famous is because the, um, uh, you know, when, when he was three, we were playing with Legos and, um, basically we were, building a bridge, I guess is what you might call it. And, uh, the, the problem we had was that the bridge wasn't level because one of the support columns was longer than the other one. And so I tried to fix this problem. I turned around behind me, grabbed the block to add to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, Ezra had, um, removed a block from the longer column. Uh, and so basically the same exact situation, I never even thought of subtracting as an option. And what was really useful about that? I mean, I talked before about how I'd always been interested in this notion of less, but I'd never really been able to like crystallize it into that simple of, um, you know, what I'm really interested in is this act, this act of taking away that, you know, then gets us to less. Um, and you know, everything kind of snowballed from there. I mean, Ezra's bridge was really helpful in my thinking about it, but then I was also able to take it to um, my friend, Gabe, who um, is a co-author on the the nature article that um, we wrote about some of the research that we did. I said, Hey, Gabe, try to solve this bridge. And I thought she was gonna, you know, get it right. Cause she's a genius. And because she's, um, I had been talking to her, about less and trying to <laughs> convince her to do research about less. And, and sure enough, she added like I did. And, uh, and then she, but then she said, Oh, so what you're trying to, what you're trying to say is, you know, why don't we, uh, subtract as a way to make things better. And so, you know, the bridge was really, it really was a, a critical moment. It's a, it's a great story, but it's totally true. Um, and then it helped me kind of understand how this idea, um, really, uh, uh, understand this idea really at its essence, this, the, the act of taking away was really critical and also help me explain it to other people in a way that makes sense. And, you know, just the way that it's been such a good story to explain it to uh, people like you, it's, it was really helpful in explaining it to Gabe and convincing her to embark on doing research with me. Yeah. I want to talk about your, in a unique position, I believe you're appointed in three different schools at the university of Virginia. Is that correct? Or three different departments? Yeah. Yeah. It means, um, it means more email, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And it's, it's nice. I mean, so my primary appointments in engineering and that's where my academic background is from. And, you know, this, this research that I'm talking about is fundamentally, you know, behavioral science or, or even psychology. And, um, and then I, I, I have an appointment in the business school and on also in, in architecture. And I guess that where that all overlaps is, a is, um, you know, I'm interested in the science of design. So how do we, um, how do we take things from the way they are to the way we want them to be? And, you know, so Ezra's bridge is an example of that, right? Here's this thing that we're trying to change from a crooked bridge to a level bridge, but so is, so are so many other things in the world, right? So is your calendar. So is your, um, your, uh, an, an itinerary, your, your, um, you're thinking, you know, you can add ideas to your mental models and you can remove ideas from your metal mo mental models. Uh, so there's, it's just this ubiquitous thing that we do is try to change things from how they are to how we want them to be. And I've, you know, always been interested in that in kind of, um, 
architectural and engineering standpoints, but this was an opportunity to kind of study it at a much more, a much more basic level. I was kind of cracking up in the book when I read the, uh, the experiment where you gave people a sample itinerary of Washington, DC. <laughs> Walk us through that. Yeah, that's the best one. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, we did all these studies, right? After It wasn't just Legos. Um, and, and in fact, you know, no, we never did a, a, a study with Ezra's Lego bridge, but we did do some Lego studies where we'd give them a massive Legos and say, okay, make this thing better. And everybody added, of course. Um, and uh, and then we would do it with um, with writing and with recipes and and eventually we we're like, well, let's try to create something that people are actually going to subtract from. And so we created what we thought was a pretty obviously packed itinerary in Washington, D.C. Um, and it was 14 different activities in a single day. Um, I, I, we, I calculated the traffic after the fact or the driving time after the fact. And it was like two and a half hours, two and a half hours worth of driving just just in between all of these activities. And we gave that to people and said, okay, make this better. And it was this kind of dra drag and drop interface. So it was really easy to pull stuff out, but they uh, overwhelmingly still added to that itinerary to make it, uh, to make it better. They, they put more things into it. And um, so, yeah, that was a, a comical example of, you know, the, you know, what's in and it, but it is also really illustrative of, of what we think is happening there, which is that, you know, we just think first when we encounter these situations, whether it's Legos or with, whether it's a itinerary, we think first about what we can add to make it better. And, um, and then never once think about subtraction because the, the thing that we found in our, our studies was that, you know, if it was the itineraries or if it was, you know, grids on a computer screen, for example, once people saw, like if they stumbled upon the subtractive idea, they would realize that it was better. The problem was that we would, that they would add and then just move on and, and think that they were done. So, um, so yeah, the itinerary is a, a, a great example. And I, I hope that I don't have as crowded a vacations going forward. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's why I was laughing as I read it. Cause there's truth and all humor. And I was thinking this is something I would do. I would try to add more stuff <laughs> until someone pointed out, <laughs> you know, you might actually enjoy your trip better if you subtracted a few things. <laughs> right. So, can you talk about in the book, you say, quote, it's easy to mistake less for loss. And that really resonated with me. Can you talk about why that's true? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's especially damaging, right? Because we know from other behavioral science, you know, loss aversion and the endowment effect, you know, Daniel Kahneman's won Nobel prizes for this work is, um, is that we're, we're, we're more disappointed to lose something than we are to gain something of the same value. Um, but what we're talking about with, you know, what we found with our research was that this is people aren't even considering less in the first place. Um, and so if we're mistaking less for a loss, right? So if we're, if we're saying that, um, you know, if we, if we deliberately consider less, right, if we say, okay, I'm going to take this thing out of my, um, out of my, well, let me, let me back up and start that over again. So the, uh, we we know from that research from from Kahneman's research for example and like a whole bunch of research after the fact that um kind of showed that this is the case in in a lot of in a lot of ways is that when we lose something that's more painful than gaining something but 
you know, that's where Gabe's um, and Gabe's shift of the framing was especially helpful. So, you know, what we were interested in is not situations in wins, which subtraction makes things worse. It's situations in which subtraction make th- makes things better. Um, and so, um, but it is really easy to just say, okay, if we take things away, we're going to perceive that as a loss. And then it falls into this category of, of loss aversion, in which case we, you know, it's really hard to kind of overcome that, um, overcome that emotional, uh, emotional feeling that this, this loss is a really bad thing. So I think, you know, you know, to bring that back into like practical terms, I think that's one of the things, you know, Marie Kondo, for example, she's a master at getting people to subtract in one specific context, right. And tidying your homes. And one of the things that she does is she has people visualize the, the space that they're going to get. Imagine your your future space with the the stuff removed, right? So she takes the the focus away from the thing that's lost, which is the the stuff, and she focuses it on the what's been gained, which is the the new room. And so in a way she's kind of steering us around that tendency to um to potentially focus on the loss and not focus on the the improved less. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I just, yeah. you know, I think you go so deep in the book. It's brilliant and it's so well researched. I mean, all the way back to like ancient civilizations and building things and showing competence and like how it fostered civilization. It's amazing how. Yeah, it's, like, I think the competence. Wired. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so once we had this finding that, you know, we overlook this, it's like, well, why are we doing that? Right. Like, are there biological reasons? Are there cultural reasons? And, you know, the biological reasons, you know, acquisitiveness, right. That, you know, we're, we're wired to acquire food and and getting things kind of stimulates those same pathways in our, in our brain. This, this desire to display competence, I think is a really key one. I mean, uh, you know, so this is like a fundamental need that we all have, which is basically to show that we can impact the world. Right. So, you know, the example I use in the book is bowerbirds building their their nests. Um, and they famously build these ceremonial nests. And the whole purpose of the nest is to attract a mate. And we basically, you know, if a, if a male bowerbird builds a fancy nest, that's showing the mate that the male bowerbird can interact effectively with the world. You know, it's healthy enough to pull the sticks around and smart enough to kind of organize them in a pretty way. And and they never use that nest for for shelter. Its whole purpose is to show that the bowerbird can can be effective in its world. And that's the same reason Ezra's playing with Legos. Um, you know, is to show, hey, I can I can do things in this world. You know, it's why our kids mimic us. It's why we at work, you know, strive to um, strive to show that we're doing things. Uh, and so, like this this need to display competence is is innate and it's, um, and it's powerful and it works against subtraction, right? Because you say, well, how does it, you know, can, can't you show competence through subtracting? It's like, well, it's a lot harder to show competence if you take something away, right? If you take away a little, you know, I'm looking at my cluttered office right now. And if I take away the, if I clean up the balloon that's sitting over there and it's deflated and just laying on the floor, if I clean that up, my wife won't notice because um, <laughs> it, it's gone. It's out of sight, out of mind. But if I, uh, but this is where like kind of understanding the science helps is that you can display competence if you clean up enough, right? If I, if you subtract enough, you can be noticeable, uh, in, in what you've done and, and, and therefore display competence. So if I cleaned up this, 
this whole room, that would be obvious. And my wife would be proud of me and, um, you know, and recognize my competence as a, as a husband contributing to, to our household. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that competence is one. And then you mentioned the cultural stuff, which was just fascinating for me because, um, you know, as, as an engineer, I always like big buildings. Like I talk in the book about, you know, going to the Colosseum in Rome and going to the ruins in, in Coba. And, you know, I, I'm just drawn to these big things. It's just, they're, uh, they're awe inspiring. Um, and as I was doing the research into, okay, what might the, you know, the, the rise of civilization and culture have to say about, you know, this kind of fundamental, or this, this desire we have to add, um, be, to think of adding before subtracting, um, this thing that kept coming up was monumental architecture. Um, it seems like the historians and the archeologists and the anthropologists all have, uh, kind of agree that this is like a thing that had to be there for civilization to start. And I, you know, even as somebody who loves big structures, that seemed like a really lofty place for monumental architecture. And, you know, the definition of monumental architecture is basically something that you build that is, um, has no function really. It's, you know, it's, it's ceremonial. And so like pyramids or even the Washington monument in the United States and what they find, you know, in researching, His, through, throughout history and the rise of civilizations is that this monumental architecture arose at the same time as civilizations, not after the civilization started to thrive, but it's like part of the genesis of civilizations right up, right with writing and, you know, some of these other and organized religion. Um, and so the point being that it's like, we, we all kind of come from these cultures and, and, and that form of physical adding is, basic to how we have, um, you know, to our cultural evolution. I mean, the, the theory of, of why it was helpful is that, you know, people had to come together to make these big things. And by building the body of civilization, you kind of built the mind, which is the culture. But in terms of, you know, adding or failure to subtract, I mean, it's certainly a, a very additive thing to build these, build these monuments. I always, and that's something I learned in reading your book. I just assumed that monumental architect, architecture came along after a society was kind of successful, but right. there's really great evidence that that's, that's totally not true. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, the Washington monument is the one I used in, in my book because it was the most recent and because we have a relatively new society. And, um, you know, if you look at it, it when it was completed, it was the tallest building in the world when it was started. Uh, and it, you know, it started before the civil war. Uh, I mean, the U S wasn't, uh, it wasn't even a player on the international stage and Washington DC was this kind of tiny backwater. And then people were like, let's build the tallest building in the world, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I just, I found that fascinating. I, I was thinking of like the Roman Coliseum I was like, yeah, well, they build these things, uh, you know, to show off their power and their, you know, wealth. And, uh, turns out it, this is really ingrained in, in who we are. So, mm -hmm. you know, for the listener and reader of this book, understanding why our inherent mode of operation is to just add something else when we're trying to solve a problem, like maybe acknowledge the, you know, the hard wiring in us, but, Yeah, the book has really great examples and practical applications on how to kind of overcome this. Um, 
maybe is this a good time to maybe talk about mental accessibility and how that plays into our ability to see some of this? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, so because I think it's, it, it allows me to also bring up the point that all of these things are interrelated, um, these kind of forces. So the mental accessibility, the, the idea of mental accessibility is just, you know, what are the, what are the ideas that come to mind? Um, and, you know, so this going back to kind of our most basic research about this phenomenon that we think of adding first, you know, so we're doing this search process is how the um, psychologist would talk about it. So you're doing this mental search, you're saying, okay, I've got this situation. Now I'm searching my mind for potential ways to improve it. And adding comes out first. So adding in that case is, is more accessible. Um, and that, you know, but that's not the only reason that we don't do things, right? I mean, sometimes we might think of subtracting and then choose against it. Um, and all of that gets wrapped into these kind of biological and cultural and then economic forces too, right? Where, you know, there are these other reasons that we might do things in addition to mental accessibility, but also kind of feeding back into mental accessibility. So my, my friend and, you know, co-researcher Ben, he, he always talks about like, oh, well, if we're, if you're just walking around in this world, um, and you, you are constantly reminded of things that we've added, right? Because they're around us. They're either the thing you're doing on your itinerary. They're the, the house that got built next to yours. They're the, um, the ideas that you've added to your brain and we're not reminded of the subtractions, right? Because they're out of sight, out of mind. Um, so he's like this differential, Ment this differential kind of mental accessibility could just be, you know, could be related to the differential, you know, accessibility of adding and evidence of adding and subtracting all around us wow. um, yeah. and vice versa. Right. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the fact that we see all this adding all around us could, you know, contribute to this kind of mental shortcut that we've developed where, Hey, we see all this adding around us, so we assume, hey, that must be the right way to to solve problems, and um, and therefore our, our brains kind of develop this shortcut to go right to adding. And and again, it's like this is they both reinforce each other. It's not one causes the other, but they they work together. Um, so that's why it was the perfect question to ask at this point because that mental accessibility works with these cultural and biological and economic forces, and they all kind of combined to to have us where we are right now um and I, I also think that the you know before we leave the cultural stuff it's important to point out that you know maybe i'm not first of all i'm not arguing that adding's bad right i'm just arguing that it's bad that we overlook one of our um <laughs> one of the most basic ways to make change that's the the bad thing and so and and i think you know you uh, if I had to choose one or the other, I would choose adding, but, but we don't, right. I mean, we can, these are both complementary ways to make change. And so, um, if we could take the, uh, well, yeah, so, so they're complementary approaches to making change. Um, and yeah, let, let me, let me leave it at that. Now a quick word from our sponsor. 
Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. I, I like it. I, you know, I can think of a lot of issues in the listeners' businesses where, example in my own life, patients present with a problem or um, employees <clears throat> come with a new initiative. And <laughs> we, we, never, we never start with... You know, what are we currently doing that's not working that we should get rid of? We just add more stuff. And I liked in the book how you brought up this topic of mental accessibility because, you know, we just we don't take enough time to reflect. And I want to maybe circle back in a little bit to the economic drivers of that. And a great example you give in the book of of an addition to your house. And I was like, all right, how's he going to do this without adding <laughs> without adding square feet? And there's a punchline there that we'll maybe get into later. But you know, I, I've seen this. I know you've seen it. Obviously, you're you're an expert at this, and the people listening hopefully have understood that. You know, there's this just overwhelming drive to solve problems or to address challenges in the market or mm -hmm. to try to achieve strategic competitive advantage by doing more, by adding stuff, by right. expansion. And in the book, you you talk about something that I maybe I'd understood it, but didn't, I had never heard it phrased this way. You talk about accessing our multitudes and that's, it can help us see and eventually get to less, which I want to challenge everyone listening, then I'll shut up, is that getting to less is actually harder, right? Even though it yeah. doesn't always get acknowledged, it's actually really difficult. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, if I could say one thing, I think that's probably the one thing, right? And I think that's, and the paradox there is, I mean, that's why we continue to need these reminders from people like Marie Kondo or, you know, Cal Newport with digital minimalism or, you know, Jamie Oliver with five ingredient recipes all the way back to Lao Tzu saying to, you know, to gain wisdom, we need to subtract things every day. And I think that the idea that it's somehow easier to subtract, uh, and in fact, it's, it's, it's harder, it's harder mentally. And then it's harder. Um, it's harder to follow through in a lot of ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad that you, you brought that up, Dustin. I think that's, you know, again, if there's one thing that could have come across, it's like respect that this is harder. And also, you know, when you're having other people do it, um, recognize that it's going to take more thought. I will, um, I will answer the accessing multitudes question, but I think that, um, 
that uh, kind of I wanted to chime in on your your comment about stepping back to reflect too, because that's one thing. You know what we found in our research is that you're you're less likely to subtract the more cognitively overloaded you are, right? So yes. the the more busy you are, <laughs> the more stuff on your plate, the more you've added, right? This this trap that we're in, the more you've added, the the less time you have to kind of step back and reflect. And when you're in that kind of reflective mode of thinking, that's one of the times where you're actually more likely to subtract because the this this heuristic that we've found this search heuristic is that we add kind of unthinkingly now if you can uh, put some more deliberate thought you're going to be more likely to subtract so um yeah so let me go to the accessing multitudes question and i think uh this came out of kind of investigating whether some cultures might be better at this than others um and you know every my, you know, Gabe, my co-researcher was having a beer with a, a German friend or, and I forget it was German or Dutch, but one of the Germanic cultures. And, uh, he's like, oh, well, we don't do that. We don't overlook <laughs> subtraction. And so, um, and we have some German samples and Japanese samples, and I assure you they overlook subtraction just as much as the rest of us. <laughs> and, you know, it, that's not really the point of the cultural research anyway, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, there are differences in how people perceive the world. There are these kind of more independent views of the world where you're thinking about like, okay, I'm I'm in control of my own destiny. I can shape things around me. And then the more interdependent view where you're thinking, okay, everything is relational and um, you know, everything moves back to this kind of central, central equilibrium. Um and we all have some of each of those, uh, and there's not really good evidence that one or the other is better at subtracting. And even if there was, there's nothing you could really do about that evidence, right? I couldn't say, hey, Dustin, well, you can subtract better if you were born in Germany, right? <laughs> even if that was that was true. Um, and so th- the point here is, you know, we've all got these multitudes in ourselves. We've all got these more kind of independent ways of thinking, and these are the kind of dominant kind of cultural uh, cultural differences basically is like interdependent ways of looking at the world and independent ways. And, uh, but we all have some of each and we all can access some of each at different times. And, you know, one example, when I'm thinking about myself, you know, when I'm, uh, uh, when I'm, let me think of a time when I'm really independent. I, well, I used to play soccer. So when I was playing soccer, it was very independent uh, view of the world. I mean, yes, I had my interdependent teammates, but it was like win or lose, right? <laughs> yep. Zero sum game. You either win this game or you don't. I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to try to win. Um, and then interdependent is like when I'm a father, you know, I've got my kids uh, around and my wife and, you know, how do I, um, how do I kind of, do what I can to help this family and how are we all kind of in this together. And so there in me, I have like these kind of two different multitudes that I can access at different times. And I think if you're trying to solve problems and in particular, if you're trying to think of subtraction more, um, you can try accessing both of these multitudes. And, um, but again, it's evidence that it's more work, right? Because <laughs> I'm telling you, hey, you got to access multiple multitudes to try to um, to try to do this. Um, think of this basic way to make change. 
Yeah, I, I love that. It was it was eye opening for me because I think it's a tendency in my own business just to, you know, trudge forward, just keep going down the same path and taking time to really think about, you know, from all aspects, are we on the right path? <laughs> you know, are there things that we can absolutely stop doing? And yeah. so that's one big takeaway since reading your book is that, you know, we start every meeting with kind of what's obviously what's working well, what needs addressed, but you know, what are we doing that we could probably stop? And, um, Oh, you really do that? That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been fun because, you know, there's, I mean, in every aspect of the business from how we, you know, welcome new patients to how we hire and train, it's just, I mean, there are so many widgets and, mm-hmm. you know, pieces of software and just technology <laughs> just bolted onto the practice that, Probably like I think of a friend who, who owns racehorses and, you know, he says the first thing we do when something like working around is we strip it all off. Like we get all the gear that's been piled. Like this trainer added that thing on his leg and this trainer added this thing to his yeah. gate and his eye and they strip it all down. So interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, I was, we were talking a little about the, the doctor stuff before we started, but like my neuroscientist neighbor, the reason he brought it up was in the context of basically deprescribing, which I had never heard of. But I mean, as I understand it, the problem is that, you know, the same thing as the racehorse basically is like people go into a doctor, they get prescribed one medication. And then the next time they go in that they're, they're evaluated based on this person plus this medication. And it just, there's never this kind of consideration. Oh, well, what if we, we stripped it all down, then maybe would like a different medication be, be appropriate. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's, it's hard, but I think, I mean, what you're doing in your meetings is exactly right. Based on the science is that, you know, to think of it first, um, to, to subtract first and, and then also to, to ensure that you have these cues, because, you know, what the research shows is that we don't tend to think of it. It doesn't show that we can't think of it. It's just, we aren't going to think of it on our own. So, but if you do bake into these cues, into your process where you're constantly asking yourself, Hey, what doesn't serve us? Well, I mean, that should, uh, hopefully that's helpful. (laughs) I'd be interested to hear how it works out. Yeah. It's been so far, it's been, it's been wonderful and you know, it'll be a learning process, but I think, you know, counterintuitive for sure, because prior to that, almost always was, you know, are we going to do what of all these things on the list? Are we going to be able to do this quarter? Mm -hmm. And how does that tie into our vision and mission? And uh, it's probably been about four years now since we, so we just specialize in pediatrics. We only do kids and teenagers, but for years, uh, you know, a significant portion of our business was adults. And that took years to make, to finally make the decision to stop doing that because we were really inefficient at it. The clinic really wasn't set up well for it. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was just, in, it was just unprofitable as well as a business owner. And I mean, had I had your book back then, <laughs> hopefully wouldn't, <laughs> I, you never know, but hopefully it wouldn't have taken me years to come to that decision. But um, anyways, I just, I really appreciate that. And um, hope yeah. everyone listening goes back and kind of goes through that section of the book to give yourself more time and to access more than just one way of thinking uh, about the problem. Uh, you give a lot of great examples in the book. Uh, I'm curious if you have any favorite examples of how, um, I know the example of removing a freeway in San Francisco kind of starts the book that mm-hmm. was really exciting for me to read about how that came to be. I don't know if you had an, a, a, maybe a favorite one you could share. Uh, well, since you just talked about pediatrics and, uh, I, I love, I love the balance bike example. So these are those, uh, 
based like bikes for two-year-olds and what the innovation is that they removed the pedals um and so whenever i see one with a little kid rolling around on one of those balance bikes it's i just get disappointed that this wasn't invented when i was a kid because <laughs> you know basically the kid pedals the bike like a fred flintstone car and um and the innovation is just to take away the pedals right and there's been you know there's been hundreds of years of bike innovation where people are saying, Oh, training wheels, you know, there's these gadgets that attach the kid's bike to the adult's bike, all these additive innovations. And it took so long to kind of get a commercialized version of, Hey, there's, there's no pedals. And this actually helps the kid ride sooner. And then the, the cool thing about these balance bikes is once you, not only do you get these extra years of biking as like a two-year-old, but once it's time for your, your big kid bike, as we called it in my house, you don't need the training wheels because you, you already know how to balance and you just need to know how to pedal, um, and then hopefully break. <laughs> so yeah, that, I would say balance bikes are definitely a favorite example. Um, and then like to give you a, uh, you know, it's not just a physical world thing like music. I, I really like uh, Bruce Springsteen and um, one of one of his most kind of critically acclaimed albums is Darkness on the Edge of Town. And one thing that's critically acclaimed about it is that he just he really stripped down the the instrumentals um, and then also the lyrics so that it it's an example of what we were talking about before of how you can show competence through subtracting. You just have to do a lot of it. And so it was so stripped down that people thought, oh my goodness, this is different. This is not like anything we've heard from Springsteen or from, from anybody else. And, uh, and so it was this example of subtracting in, in music that, um, kind of showed, Hey, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is a very competent subtraction that is, that has made the world better. And probably I would, I'd have to go back and reread. You could tell us the interview covered in the book with Springsteen, but probably harder, more difficult to make that album. Right. I mean, if you're yeah. stripping everything down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, if you're not a Springsteen fan, I mean, one of the things he's just famous for is his dogged work ethic. I mean, the dude's 72 years old or something right now. And he's still churn. He churned out two albums and a book in the time it took me to write one book that was shorter <laughs> than his book. And, um, and so, yeah, he's like, he definitely works hard. And then, and darkness, like, when he was recording the songs for that album, he recorded like 50 songs that he's, you know, released kind of 30 years later <laughs> and people are like, Oh, these songs are pretty good too. And so he had, he had stripped songs out of it too. So yeah, certainly harder, right? Because he had done all this work to create, you know, more than 60 songs. And then he just picked the best ones to put on the album. And then they were stripped down kind of at that level too. So again, you know, it's a, a really clear example that, you need to you need to do more um, to to get to this notion of less to get to less. Yeah, I thought it was a big takeaway for me in the book was that you know in, in every industry there's a I don't know if it's a just a inertia or status mm -hmm. quo. There's kind of this tendency to stop at good enough, and I think a lot of music stops at good enough. It's okay, mm -hmm. it's, we've only got so much time, or we only have so much budget. Or years ago, it's there's only so many records that can fit into a record shop. There's only so much time on the radio. And so, you know, I think maybe that was a gatekeeper decision, but um, you talk about it in the book, you call it satisficing. I don't know if I'd ever heard that word before, but I, I like it. 
or you haven't yeah. dotted it in the margins. Did you invent that word? <laughs> no, oh, God, no. I wish I wish the person who had invented it had invented a better word. But the, uh, so it's a it's a term by Herbert Simon. So um, you know, like Kahneman and uh, Tversky are kind of this. I would think of it as kind of this second wave of. Um, revolution in psychology showing that people are irrational, you know, to just to paraphrase, but, um, but Herbert Simon was kind of the first wave and he also won a Nobel prize. And, you know, what he showed was that people, uh, people make, don't optimize every single decision, which makes perfect sense. Right. I mean, you've got a limited amount of time in the day. If you're going to, you know, pick out, spaghetti at this spaghetti sauce at the supermarket and there are a thousand options and you just want the one that is you know below some kind of price threshold and maybe has you know um doesn't have onions and uh and doesn't have a ridiculous amount of salt for example um so you you, you just want a satisfactory decision there because then you can go home and spend time with your family, which is maybe you want to optimize the decisions there. So there's all these decisions that we make, not by getting an optimal solution, but by just by getting a, a satisfactory and sufficient solution. And that's where Simon combined those words to come up with, with satisfied. And that's kind of endured. Um, and, it, and it describes this tendency to just stop stop it good enough, which we do all the time. And most of the time it, it serves us well. Like I'm not going to stop using that process for picking out my spaghetti because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's satisfactory, but, um, but this tendency to stop it good enough when it comes to subtracting can, can be harmful. And that's, you know, what we found in our experiments was that people would, for example, well, let me describe, a our grids. Um, so we, we eventually came up with this paradigm where there was a, a pattern of grids on a computer screen and the pattern was broken into four quadrants. And the challenge was to, for the participants was to make this thing symmetrical. Um, and what we would do is just put extraneous marks in one of the quadrants. Um, and so when we said, okay, make this symmetrical using as few, a few clicks or actions as possible, um, they could either add blocks to three of the grids, which was more work, or they could subtract from one of the grids, which was less work. And what they would do, um, they, you know, overwhelmingly added as in the other experiments, but what they would do is add to all of the three grids and say, okay, got it. And then they, they moved on. Um, when we challenge, when we had them do it multiple times said, okay, solve this multiple ways. Uh, they became more likely in the later iterations to eventually realize that like, hey, subtracting was one way to do this. And then when we subsequently said, okay, well, which way would you pick um, of all the ways that you tried? Which one was the best? They obviously recognized that subtracting was the the better way to solve it and they chose it. So, so what's happening there is that they kind of get that good enough solution and just keep going. And I think that in that case, it's just cognitive satisficing, but you know, some of what you're describing too, you know, this happened to, I did a uh, construction management before I went back for my PhD and went into academia. And, you know, once, once you've satisfied the client, there's very little, um, financial incentive to do more. Right. So if you're a, an architect designing a school, which was, you know, some of the things that we worked on and, you've got a school that the client says, Oh, that looks good. That looks like the the other school we've got over here. Um, sounds good. Uh, there's very little incentive to kind of keep going and 
strip out elements of that design that would actually make it better. So there's all kinds of reasons we would satisfy and it's damaging when we think of adding first and then satisfy and don't keep going and then take away. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think okay. In the yeah. news today, I saw an article on that fast food is now going to these multi-use, um, you know, containers. So instead of okay. a single-use disposable cup or burger container, they're putting them in these plastics you can, you know, dishwasher safe, take home and use. But a really smart person said, you know, the worst possible scenario here is that people take these and just use them once and throw them away. <laughs> like no one thought about how can we get away from giving every single item, you know, to a consumer and something that gets immediately thrown away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that goes back to, well, it's good. It's so economically, it might be good enough, right? It might be, it might satisfy mm-hmm. the shareholders or right. the business owner, but you know, environmentally might be one of the worst decisions we ever make. Um, yeah. I loved, I want to go back to that experiment because I I think maybe in the nature article, there was a feature and I got to see a video of people doing that. Yeah. It's so yeah. smart how you design that. And then when you overloaded them cognitively showing like, I think it was like push a button when you see a five or something. It was really yeah. fascinating. That's to ex- see that. You got it exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that, I want to dovetail that into information overload just being constantly bombarded with new information we're contributing to that today by giving listeners another podcast to listen no no this is not something to subtract this is yeah this is time well spent um and yeah and i I mean again it's add and subtract it's not like information's bad it's just we need to take control of it so um, yeah when i got as i got towards the end of the book it was clear to me that this isn't uh, a zero-sum game it's not it's not add or subtract it's how to figure out how to do both um we talked a little bit about giving yourself space and time to kind of step back and reflect. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that to maybe today an information overload? I don't know if you've saw any, if you've seen any difference with maybe people you've worked with or, or other experiments you're working on where uh, I guess obviously cognitive overload and information overload don't help. Um, are those things we can do to give ourselves space and time? Have you found some that work really well, either for you or, for your students. Yeah. And- yeah. I mean, personally for me, I think this is, um, you know, people often ask, Hey, did you get better at this through doing the research? And I think this is one area where I'm proud to have improved because, you know, I just, I love information. I'm a professor and I love ideas. And I mean, I used to run on a treadmill while I'm listening to a podcast while I'm, you know, catching up on the news on the TV. So, <laughs> um, and that's, uh, I mean, obviously you've got to bring information in, but also that didn't leave me any time to, to synthesize. Um, and so now, um, you know, a practical thing that I've done is just on my runs, I've decided that that's going to be a a synthesizing time. And so I'll, I'll unplug and go for my run and it's a different kind of thinking, but if, um, and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to just be running all day and not ever bringing in new information and just kind of be with the thoughts in my head. But it was really important to kind of intentionally clear out that space to allow my, my thought process to kind of, you know, subtract some things or to, you know, focus in on what's important. So that's like a really tangible thing that I did. And I think that, that, that all of us can do and that some of the, you know, Cal Newport's book on digital minimalism is really kind of helpful with that or, or on deep work. And, um, the, so, so yeah, kind of relieving that burden. 
Um, it's still though, it's, I mean, I like subtracting ideas is one of the hardest things to do. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book, I was, I was started to look into the education research and see, okay, well, how to, how do teachers, you know, subtract wrong ideas when a, a kid, you know, like my, my son, who's now six comes in and, and thinks that, um, you know, there's robot hamsters. <laughs> How does the teacher <laughs> help the kid subtract that idea? And they they had there's this whole like kind of um, industry, not industry, but like line of study on like how do we remove misconceptions? And they eventually gave up <laughs> because it was so oh, wow. hard to subtract misconceptions. They're like, well, that just doesn't work. We've got to help them reframe the the misconceptions. And there were some problematic things about subtracting misconceptions because it would kind of, obviously you don't want to have, you know, some kid come in with a different cultural background and then the teachers telling them that those are misconceptions, right? So you wanted, there, it, it, it was good that they've made this shift to kind of like working with them, but it was just really interesting that they found it so hard to get people to subtract these ideas and not just in kids, but in, in grownups, uh, in grownups too, that, that subtracting wrong ideas is really hard. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had a, a really easy way to do that. One of the things I talk about, well, let me tell, <laughs> I love the, the grown-up story of people doing this. So there's this guy, Leon Festinger, who's a famous psychologist, and he, he joined this doomsday cult. Um, and it was a brilliant move um, because what he was studying was like, how do people change their beliefs? And so he joined the doomsday cult. And if um, before the doomsday came and he, his idea was that, well, if, if the doomsday comes, then I'll be in the cult. So I'll be all set. But if, <laughs> if it doesn't, if it doesn't come, I'll have this fascinating case study of how people like change their beliefs. And, um, you know, we're not, most of us aren't cult members, but, the <laughs> um, but the, we, we all do the same basic thing. So what happened when, you know, the doomsday was supposed to come at midnight and at first people started arguing about like which clock was the official clock of the doomsday. So it's like, okay, well maybe, maybe that clock's wrong and the doomsday is coming in five minutes, just hang on here. And then, um, and then they, you know, kind of time kept going and kept going. And by the, basically by the morning, they had shifted their thinking around to say, okay, the, you know, the, the, the end of days was going to come, but because we had been so like vigilant in our, in our belief, we, we staved it off. And so they were, they were heroes. So they, they didn't change their beliefs that the doomsday was in fact coming. They just kind of shifted around. We all do kind of similar things when we're presented with evidence that doesn't match up with what we like. Um, anyway, yeah, I, <laughs> so it's just hard. Um, and I think, uh, you know, absent the, the, this reminder, okay, Hey, we can also subtract wrong ideas. I think, um, analogies can be helpful. And that's one thing from the science that is useful. So basically, and the reason the analogy is helpful. Um, so, you know, what I just described was, okay, people just hold on to their initial ideas, right? And you present them with some kind of evidence to the contrary. And it's, it's hard for that evidence to overcome the existing idea. But if you buttress the evidence with an analogy that they already believe, um, then you've essentially got like kind of that evidence plus the analogy fighting against the wrong idea. And then you've got a, a better chance at kind of changing the idea. So, you know, I, I, I really wish I had a, Hey, here's how to do it. Um, because I think this is like the ultimate thing here is how to subtract these wrong ideas. Um, 
but that's that's one way um and i think just you know kind of thinking about subtraction can be helpful yeah and just acknowledging it i was laughing the whole time with the doomsday cult because i mean like, yeah. we all do that you know like not not as a cult <laughs> member right. I hope, but i was thinking of like em- employees like training new employees they come on the team and there's some area of the training they're just not getting or they're not up to speed or they show up late or they miss a day and don't call in sick. And we immediately go to like, well, it's like the, it's the same thing as like, well, we must have the wrong clock. Clearly it's a doomsday. And we'll say like, you know, <laughs> the employee clearly is, you know, not a hard worker or hasn't, you know, got the right uh, mindset, but we never look at our training, right? We never actually look at, well, maybe there's no such thing as a doomsday. <laughs> maybe you actually, right. we're wrong. We didn't trade, we didn't put them in the right program. Maybe we hired the wrong person. It's not them. Maybe we put them in the wrong role. And I, I, mean, right. I think I do that all the time in our business where we see issues that it's not, you know, it's just, it's so easy to ignore than to remove a wrong idea in the business. But it starts, I mean, your book is a great place to start with acknowledging what, you know, why and how we, how we do that. And then looking at the hard task of, of getting rid of some things, you know, I, in my business, getting me out of that role, you know, when I ended the first five or 10 employees, I hired them all. So they all looked like, sounded like behaved (laughs) just like me, which is a nightmare for everyone else. (laughs) And, you know, I had to subtract myself out of that part of the business, but, um, you know, I just, anyways, we could talk all day about that. I'm going to, well, no, that's a good, uh, I, I wanted to, cause I talked to, um, Bob Sutton, who is, he writes, he wrote good, bad, good boss, bad boss. And he reached out after I wrote the book. Cause he's really interested in like organizational friction and how to get rid of that. And one of the things we talked about was like, it seems like we'd be better at doing it for somebody else or having somebody else subtract for us. Right. Because that overcomes some of this, you know, Hey, this is a thing that I made. And, you know, our research actually, uh, when I was like, Oh, Bob, I think I have some evidence for that. And because when we had people modify writing, um, they were more likely twice as likely to subtract, in fact, from somebody else's writing as from their own writing. Yeah, and I think the same would go with, you know, yeah, like, hey, overhaul the human, you know, the onboarding process. And, uh, you know, maybe not having the person who made the onboarding process do that could lead to more subtraction. I also think, you know, what you've done in your in your meetings, you know, asking these processes that don't serve us well, that same kind of cue should work for the ideas where it's like this regular thing that's like, okay, what are the things that we believe? Um, and which ones don't we believe anymore? Um, and I think just that kind of like regular check-in should be really helpful. And I mean, I, again, I think, uh, you know, if the book does what I hope it does and what I think it is doing in the medical community, at least that I see is that it just, it gives smart people uh, or thoughtful people a this new lens of of looking at the world. And I think by by understanding the why more, by seeing these examples of how people have subtracted in all these different contexts, um, you're going to be able to to figure out. You're, you'll you'll be closer to figuring it out, or, or have more ideas for for using it in the situations that matter for you. So, you know, I haven't prescribed. Here's the the ten steps to use this in a you know a small medical company. But um, I do think that somebody who runs a small medical company can kind of take the book and come up with 10 better steps than I ever would have been able to. This is such a great, great contribution to society and to the literature. And we are grateful 
you wrote it. I'm going to include in the show notes the link to your nature article, and I do I do believe it was the uh, the I think that one of the Strider bikes that caught my eye in the Washington Post. Yeah, it, yeah. It's uh, it's just we'll, we'll link to all that because it's it's just fantastic. So uh, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. I want to make sure everyone has a chance to find out, you know, clearly what you're researching, what you're doing. Obviously, read more and learn more about the book. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us where listeners can can go to learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter now, and uh, and then also uh, lightyclots.com is my website, um, and yeah, you know, and really in the book, um, and so or just just Google. I have a great Google name. Um, my, parents, <laughs> my parents had good foresight. I'm so grateful you came on the program. Thanks for being here, Lighty. Thank you for writing the book. It's been an absolute honor. Well, thank you, Dustin. These were this was the the best set of questions I've had yet, and it was a lot of fun and and thought provoking for me. So I really a- appreciate your contribution to my thinking. You've been listening to another episode of the Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list. All the study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, or give us a call at 1-800-891-7520. We can talk about how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, or our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. And until next time, remember the words of Margaret Atwood, who said, I read for pleasure, and that is the moment I learn the most go make it a great month. I'll see you right here next time on the Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.